So, this morning we're back in the book of Colossians. I had a friend ask me this week, how long are we going to be in Colossians? I said, I don't know. We're going to we get finished. So, we're in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 this week, where the Scripture says, continue steadfastly in prayer with an attitude of watchfulness and thanksgiving. Or the NIV says, be devoted to prayer with watchfulness and and thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly in prayer. If you look at the book of Colossians in chapter 3, it tells you how to live out the Christian faith based upon the wonder of what Christ has done for us. You could ask, well, how do you live out the Christian faith? And the answer, if you looked at this book, would be something like this. The Word of God, the community of God's people, and prayer. Chapter 3, verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell richly in you, richly, teaching and admonishing one another, in all wisdom, with singing and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he goes into a discussion about relationships in the home and in the culture. Some very difficult statements are made, but the importance of, of relationship. And then he hits prayer. Chapter 4, verse 2, once again, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And, and so prayer. Today I'm going to give you a talk on prayer. It's going to be prayer 101. But, but prayer is um, essentially very important. So, so if you look at the, the Christian in armor in Ephesians chapter 6, you're going to read where we are to put on the belt of truth and we're to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And we are to have our feet shod with the preparation by the gospel of peace. And we're to take up the shield of faith by which we quench the fiery darts of the adversary. And we're to put on the helmet of salvation. First Thessalonians calls it the helmet of the hope of our salvation. And we're to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And you say, that is the Christian in complete armor. Well, not really. Listen to verse 18 of chapter 6. It says this, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. All. Listen again. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To the end, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And if you look at some commentaries, one commentary says that regarding prayer, prayer is the main weapon of spiritual warfare. Another says that prayer, which is the Christian's most powerful resource, so prayer is incredibly important. Now I'm going to give you three things about prayer. Three reasons I don't think we pray as we should, and then go into the text very briefly this morning. Reason number one, I think one reason we don't pray is that we just misunderstand prayer. Prayer is a battle. Prayer is fighting against the status quo. Uh, two definitions of prayer. Larger catechism, question 98 says, what is prayer? And the answer is this. Prayer is the offering up of our desires. It's a good word. 
our desires to the Lord and all things agreeable to his will. In the name of Jesus Christ, with the confession of our sins and thankfulness for his mercies. It's the offering up of our desires to the Lord. Or the New City Catechism that just came out a few years ago. What is prayer? Prayer is pouring out our heart to God in praise, petition, confession, and thanksgiving. It's pouring out our heart. So, so I, I love the words pouring out our heart, um, offering up of our desires, strong words. Conversely, now I'm, I'm going to be critical about a song here that may be dear to some of you who are a little bit older, but I don't mean to be critical, but I, I want us to, to, to think well, okay? Some of us who have a history of being in the church grew up with a hymn entitled, In the Garden. You heard it? In the Garden, okay. I go to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses, and the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And He walks with me, and He talks with me, and He tells me I am His own. What's the next line? Wait a minute, I got to hear it. Come on. I should know this. It's my illustration. And the joy, oh, thank you. The joy we share as we tarry there. Thank you, Mike. None other, ha- none other has ever known. Really? Re- really? So the joy you have praying, nobody else has ever known before? Are you kidding me? See, it's just schmaltzy. It's schmaltzy. I go to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. It's fine to go early while the dew is still on the roses. I'm an early morning person. But it, that, that, that just doesn't do it for me. But, but the shorter catechism does. The offering up of our desires to the Lord. Due to the catechism, it is pouring out my heart unto the Lord. I just wrote this, that prayer is an emotive experience driven by knowledge of God and my need. It's an emotive experience. You don't, you don't get offering up of your desire and the pouring out of your heart. That's, those are emotive phrases. It's driven by my knowledge of God and His goodness and His triune glory and my need. For example, Psalm 46 is an invitation to prayer. Psalm 46, the first verse, we get one of the greatest hymns ever by Martin Luther, Almighty Fortress. It says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. The wall of the earth should change, the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Conversely, verse 6, the nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. Nations rage. Families rage. Subgroups rage against the things of God. But the psalmist says, listen, there is a river of grace and peace and mercy that makes the people of God glad. Therefore, verse 10, 
Be still and know that I am God. Quit your raging. Quit your fist pumping. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. It's an invitation to prayer. You live in a culture that rages. But there's a stream that makes glad the city of God. God is there. The Lord in tender mercy brings people across your path who blesses you, who bless you and teach you. And there's a dear lady in our church for years and years and years who's in heaven now, Miss Eleanor. And Miss Eleanor would, this was her favorite verse, Psalm 46:10. And many times she would stand in front of me and she would say, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the heavens. I'll be exalted on the earth. It's an invitation to prayer. It's an invitation to offer up your desires to the Lord. Pour out your heart to Him. Or Psalm 20, another invitation to prayer. Psalm 20 is a prayer for the king who is going to be the predecessor to the ultimate Messiah king whose name is Jesus. And so I'm praying for the king and asking God to bless the king and the Davidic line that would culminate in Jesus. In the middle it says this, verse 7, some will trust in horses and, or chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we arise and we stand upright. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Lord, we are not going to trust in our IRA or our stock portfolio or our education or, or our zip code or our socioeconomic standing or our health because it's very precarious. But we're going to trust in you. It's an invitation to prayer. It's an invitation to look to the Lord. And ultimately, everything else will collapse and fall, but we will stand upright. So one reason we don't pray, we just misunderstand. Listen, it's a fight. It's, it's an emotive experience driven by the knowledge of the living God and my need. The second thing about prayer, we just neglect it because we don't understand the power that's involved. We don't understand that prayer is one of the chief means that the Lord uses to energize, sustain us, and to move the kingdom forward. I want to be a man of prayer, more a man of prayer. I was reading recently about policemen in America. Gallup poll released a few weeks ago, taken over three years, found out that 54% of Americans have a high degree of trust in policemen. 54%. I am among that 54%. Thank you, policemen, for what you do. Police women, thank you for what you do. The only time that I do not appreciate them is when they are sitting on the road upon which I am traveling. 54%. And if, if you're a police person, that's much higher than the approval of the U.S. Congress. Okay. We talked about that uh, policemen fight, uh, just, uh, they have a thankless job. They deal with some of the worst people in our culture, and it is a depressive job, and, and, and that there's a growing number of policemen who are committing suicide. But that's true across our culture. The, the Center for Disease Control just released suicide rates, and they're, they're skyrocketing in our country, folks, especially among young people. 
We talked about how police forces are turning to a different way of combating this, and this has taken place in Portland, Oregon, and Bend, Oregon, and San Diego, California, and Mellow Park, California, and Emmer, Emeryville, California, and Madison, Wisconsin. And they're turning to a meditation. It's very interesting. It's an interesting article. And the meditation they're turning to is something called, I get this right, it's, it's called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, or MSBR, led by a man named John Kabat-Zinn, Z-I-N-N, who founded it in 1979. That's probably an adopted name, I'm guessing. But it's based upon Buddhistic practices and being quiet, mindfulness and, and rhythmic breathing. And he said that 80% of the devotees of this are, are women, but now more and more men are coming. He talked about these police officers who've gone to these seminars and now they're practicing rhythmic breathing and focus. Instead of one session, true story, they brought in raisins and they gave individual officers raisins and they said, meditate on that raisin. I mean, R-A-I-S-I-N. And one guy said, after we quit laughing, we started looking at it and really it was pretty cool. So they, they breathe rhythmically, they, 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 they concentrate and stuff like that. And really, the more I read about stuff like this, the more I don't understand it. And he gave some examples. Here's an example from this guy that established this. He said, you're in a fight with your partner. So when you get in a fight with your partner, ask for a time out and find a quiet place. You don't think that's silly? Next time you get in a fight with your spouse, say, time out. Let's find a quiet place and concentrate, breathe rhythmically. That, that, that wouldn't work in my house. Maybe it, didn't, maybe it wouldn't with you. It wouldn't work with us. <laughs> anyway. Then change the channel in your brain by focusing on your breathing. Think about how the air feels as it enters and exits your body. Repeat or think the word peace as you inhale and the word relax as you exhale. Some of you are doing it now, I can see. You'll be calmer so you can resolve the conflict without your anger boiling over. And I'll I mean, I read that, I mean, there, there's stuff in this, there, nobody's chanting the name of a Hindu god or stuff like that. So I just like, it's just silly. It really is. And I'm thinking, this is the best they've got. And I think of the promise in Philippians 4, it says, don't be overly concerned about everything, but in any, everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made unto God, and the, the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. You, 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 you meditate purposefully on the character and the Word of God. And this is the best they've got. So don't be snookered by stuff like this, and this is all over our culture. So one reason we don't pray is we're not, we've neglected and we're not aware of the incredible, I mean, this is the first day of the month, so the first day of the month, I always pray through Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on the law he meditates day and night. And he'll be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields his fruit in season and whose leaf never withers. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked 
I delight the chaff that the wind blows away. I'm going to do that. You, may I meditate on your scripture? Do not neglect offering up your desires to God and all things according to his will in the name of Jesus. God teaches to pray. It, to me, it's like, it's, it's like this, this is, it's, it's like camping on the beach in Charleston in August. The humidity is 90%. 24 hours a day. I went for a walk the other day at 5.30 in the morning, and in 20 minutes, I looked like I'd been taking a shower. Humidity was so high. At 5 o'clock, 5.30 in the morning. And so you're sitting there, it's, it's 24-7, 9% humidity, and you're in a tent, and you're miserable. Down the beach, 100 yards, it's a five-star resort. With your name on a door, with a buffet three days a week, an in-room massage whenever you want it, paid by another. That's what the cross does. Don't neglect the beauty of Jesus. Thirdly, the reason we don't pray more is I think we make it too difficult. I've read books on prayer, and you have too. Many of you that talk, have all these diagrams, and you do this for so many minutes, and this and that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But, but I also think that the Bible says, basically, you come to Jesus like a child. Messy, with wonder, and joy. Little children are just messy, but they've got joy and wonder. I, I just think we make it too difficult. Pray. Pick a time to pray. I pray first thing in the morning. I try to pray later in the day, but first thing in the morning. And just lift up your desires to the Lord. I pray scripture. I'll read a psalm, and I'll pray the psalm for that day. For There's a little diagram in your worship guide. It shows a hand. This is very basic. It's very simple. It's what I do. Um, again, it's very simple. So, so the hand. The thumb represents my self and my family, my immediate family. So I, I pray the thumb. And uh, I'll, in my Bible reading, I'll, I'll read a verse. For example, I read Psalm 1, that, uh, verse 5. The, the, understand that the wicked will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And, and I said, Lord, help me to understand that you watch over my way. May my daughter and son, and daughter-in-law and son-in-law, and three grandkids understand that. May, may my wife understand that, Sarah. May Sarah understand that. So I pray for that. And, and then the index finger is for people who point people to Christ. And so I've divided our staff into three different groups for three different times during the day or rotating days. I'll pray for them and our elders, and I'll pray for our Barnabas partners. I've got our Barnabas partners listed for five for each day of the week. And I'll just, I'll just pray for them. It's nothing fancy, but I'll pray Scripture for them. And I, 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 there are some national leaders I pray for. I'm, I'm committed to pray consistently for two seminary presidents that are good friends of mine. And they know that. And then the, the, the middle finger is to pray for government, governing officials. Always, people make, always make jokes about that. You know, it's the middle fingers for the government. Go ahead and say it, but I, the middle fingers for the government. And so I, I pray for governing officials. 
for example, I just this morning, I did this little card this morning. The, this is my five. I can, I can take it out and walk down the hall, or I can, I, I can, at a stoplight, I can pull it out and look at it. So as I pray for our government officials the next three days, and I'm going to switch them three days doing the other second card. I'm going to pray for President Trump. I'm praying for Chief of Staff John Kelly. And I'm praying for this incredibly important decision about the next Supreme Court justice. It's huge, guys. It is huge. It'll be huge for our grandchildren. I'm talking about grandchildren if you're 25 right now. Then I pray for international leaders. The fourth finger, the weak finger, is for people who are suffering right now physically, the death of a loved one. I've got two names here of people that are suffering because they don't know Christ. I'm saying, Lord, let me share the gospel with them. And then this last finger is for the next generation. I pray for our children's ministry. I pray for Palmetto Christian Academy here at our church, our ministry here. I pray that our children will be safe, protected, and instructed. It's simple. But don't make it hard. I mean, this, this is just... This is, just in my wallet. I mean, it's no big deal. It's, it can be done by a, I know, a third grader. I don't want to neglect the precious privilege of prayer. So now we go to Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The word for watchful here means to be, have mental alertness. Mental alertness about the times in which you live and about your own needs. It's very interesting that all the old confessions, all the other confessions of faith use the word confession in describing prayer. Westminster Shorter Catechism, it is lifting up of our de- desires to the Lord and all things agreeable to his word in the name of Christ with confession of our sins. This is the catechism, pouring out your heart to God in praise and petition and confession and thanksgiving. So, so Confession is part of mental alertness. By confession, I need, I mean repentance. We are to be a repenting people all of our days. We're never done with sin, so we repent. And, and the larger, and the Westminster Confession of Faith says that we are to repent of every sin individually. Not just say, God, forgive me. We say, God, forgive me for losing my temper. God, forgive me for being unkind to my spouse. God, forgive me for this. We are to be a repenting people. So I'm going to talk about repenting. Four things. Number one, a repenting person has a mind that is constantly renewed by the Scripture. See, the Bible, James says, is like a mirror. You look at it, and you make adjustments. Hebrews 4, verse 12, a well-known verse. The Word of God is living, and it is active, and is sharper than a double-edged sword. And it pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit. So, see, the Word of God, it deals with us. Well-known passage, 2 Timothy 3, about the authority of the Bible, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. Absolutely. Listen. Reproof and correction, instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, So two out of the four words, or maybe three out of the four words, deals with correction, 
course adjustments, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. So as I read the Bible, my, my question is, I read it, and I, I'll ask you, has the Word of God exposed areas in my life that need to be corrected? So a repenting person has their mind constantly renewed by the Scriptures. Secondly, a repenting person desires to respond immediately because the Abba Father is gloriously good. Now here's a, something. You, listen to me, you are more bent or sinful than you realize. But the Father's love is more lavish than you could ever hope. And you'll ever know this side of heaven. Therefore, I want to run to the Father by the work of Jesus. I want to respond immediately. And I do not always do that. Matter of fact, a lot of times I don't. But I need to, because God's way is always good. It's hard to say to people, I was wrong, do you forgive me? Especially if you live with them, isn't it? And yet I need to. Thirdly, I should desire as much as is possible a complete, complete break with sin. Listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith, article chapter 15. Let me just read it. By it, a sinner, out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also the filthiness and the odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and the righteous law of God, and upon apprehension of his mercy in Christ, to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God. So, so t- two things happen when you repent. You see the danger and the filth and the odiousness and the putrid nature of sin and the glory of Christ. And when you see the danger and the odiousness and the filth and the horrid nature of sin, and the beauty of Jesus, you want to run this way. That's what, that's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I need. I want a, a, a complete break uh, because it's, sin's repulsive. But the way, the way we operate sometimes, the way I operate, to be honest with you, uh, years ago there was something called the Save Your Life Diet. I, I got the book from the library and read it. And because people were, some, some of my friends were talking about it. And the Save Your Life Diet went like this. Let me say from the outset, I think it's a bad thing. I'm I'm not sure it works. Some dietitian, physiologist can tell me afterwards. But in this this deal, for six days a week, you really watched your diet and you exercised. And then on on one day out of the week, it was called your free day. And people told me that on your free day, you could eat as much of anything you want for 24 hours. I mean... Three banana splits, four mellow mushroom pizzas, you know, two pounds of hamburger meat. I mean, I'm going, I don't know how that works. I mean, I don't think that works. But people say, no, that's what I'm doing, man. Free day's coming, that type of thing. Well, a lot of times our growth in Christ is like that. We go real, then we go, We say, well, that's just life. No, no, fight against that. God did not become a man and die on the cross so that you could have an angry spirit. 
God didn't die on the cross and shed his precious blood so that you could be somebody who was a racist. Or somebody who was just an occasional dabbler in pornography. Or just every once or twice, every other week, treated your spouse horrifically. He died to make us a holy people under the Lord. And so we, we want to see. I want to see clearly. The thing about sin, sin obscures my ability to see God and to be used of Him. I want to see clearly. I was reading about this book that's just come out. It's entitled The Darker the Night, The Brighter the Stars by the, by the former editor of The Economist, a very good magazine out of London. But it's about a man and his wife who died of cancer. And he just, he's writing about her death and what happened. And he's been trained as a neuropsychologist. So he's kind of thinking about how the brain and the mind works. And he's a self-professed atheist. And he says this in the book, he says that, uh, he says, one of my favorite philosophers is author Schopenhauer, who saw life as a sliver of consciousness between slabs of eternal nothingness. I'll say that again. A sliver of consciousness between slabs of nothingness. And he writes, my heart rebels against it, but better to confront a harsh truth and swallow a consoling lie. So his wife's dying, and he says, there's nothingness. One reviewer says, Mr. Brooks has an admirable willingness to, to hover in a realm of uncertainty. He empathizes with Carl Sagan's irrational yearning to communicate with his dead parents. Carl Sagan, another atheist, his desire to believe that something of them still exists. Listen to this quote. He knew and I accept that nothing remains and yet the sense that something does never goes away. That's an important sentence from the book. I'll read it again. He knew and I accept that nothing remains and yet the sense that something does never goes away. Close quote. That's, that's what we call having eternity in your heart. There's a still, small voice that says there is something, there's something, there's something, there's a God. And then he says this, if death yields eternal nothingness, then it is all the more important to live well. Mr. Brooks consults the Stoics, and he pleads with people, don't live wastefully. This is a guy who doesn't know Christ. It's amazing. Mr. Brooks recommended that his wife read the Stoics on her deathbed. To which she responded with a weary smile. This was a woman in her late 50s, after all, who did not need to consult Marcus Aurelius to know that the last dregs of life were to be savored. Even on the brink of death, with her lungs failing and her legs and hips swollen with her disease, she was already determined to live with grace the last day of her life. And I read that and I thought, no hope. I want to see clearly the hope of Christ. And sin clouds my vision. And I thought about this compared to a very difficult time this week. We had a funeral here Thursday for a young man who died of cancer at the age of 28. And his wife was sitting right there, his wife of one year and 10 days. 28. 
And it was hard. It was hard. And there were tears and there was sorrow. And yet, let me tell you this. Even in the midst of the sorrow of a 28-year-old man dying in the full flower of his manhood, leaving behind a wife of a year and 10 days, even in the midst of that, there was a sense of joy because we believed that because he trusted in Christ, death is not the final word. And I, I thought of that as I read this book review about, about this former editor of The Economist magazine, a man who's very, very bright. And the only thing he can say to his wife on her deathbed is, this is a sliver of consciousness between two poles of nothingness. And my heart breaks for them. It breaks for them. And I say, God, do not let me live a self-consumed, self-satisfied life when people around me have no hope. And don't let sin blind me to their plight. So let me be a repenting man. Fourthly, in the area of repentance, there are degrees of what I call swallowing the hook. Let me explain it. In Mark chapter 9, there is a an encounter that Christ has with a man whose son would throw himself into the fire when he had different type of seizure moments. And it says this in verse 21 and following that they brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw him immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell to the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. How often have you said that? I say it all the time. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And some older manuscripts add, and fasting. Prayer and fasting. I read that and I think about us. A couple of examples. There are people in our worship services here and in the worship center. And their testimony, they've told me their testimony. Their testimony is this. When I repented of my sin and came to faith in Jesus, I had been an alcoholic or a drug person for years. But when I came to faith, the Lord took away my desire. I know other people who are just as committed and just as gracious, who say, you know, I repented of my sin 
and I repented of alcohol abuse, but there's not a week that goes by when I don't have to plead for God to deaden my desire for alcohol. What's the difference? I don't know. There's a guy named Marvin Olosky, who's the editor of World Magazine, a wonderful magazine, by the way. And Marvin Olosky said that before I became a believer, he said, I was a committed communist. I was a lover of Karl Marx. And I hated the private ownership of property. I thought everything should be owned by everybody. And he said, I would look at what people owned, and I would hate them in my heart, and I would covet for what they had. He said, when I came to know Jesus, when I came to know Jesus, my coveting was broken at that very moment. He said, since I've come to know Christ, I haven't dealt with coveting. And he says, no, other sins I've had to deal with. Why? I don't know. I've talked to people who said that when I came to faith in Christ, men, that the pornography, it was not an issue. Others of us have to have filters, have to be very careful. Here's my point. Some of us have swallowed the hook deeply, and we need prayer and fasting to get it out. We need to have an elder's team watch over us. We need to go to people and say, plead with me that, that, that my respectable sin of materialism, I bought the lie. That the more I own, the more I have, the better off I am. I bought that lie, and I'm in so much debt right now, I cannot make it. Plead with me and help me get out, help me get the hook out. Others are unforgiving toward their spouse, angry toward their spouse. You need to go to somebody and say, help me get the hook out of my spirit. We all deal with sin. Every person here. And then there, there are certain sins and degrees of sin that really take control. Don't minimize that. And then he says this, being watchful with an attitude of thanksgiving. Very quickly, uh, thanksgiving, uh, why? why Every, everywhere you read in the Bible, in this book, passage of Colossians, time after time, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. Uh, why is Thanksgiving so incredibly important? Answer, I believe Thanksgiving is a means by which we give, get our attention off of ourselves and onto the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter 5, just a couple thoughts. Starting verse 15, see to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Really? Really? See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Somebody cuss in front of you as you going across one of our bridges, as you've been sitting in line and they go dash in front of you and cut in. And, what, what do you think? God bless you, brother. Have a good trip. No, really. I mean, just come on. Then it says, rejoice always. This is always. Pray without ceasing, which means you pray all the you're a person. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Jesus Christ. 
So see, we, we can give thanks because there is an Abba Father that watches over us, that cares for us. And nothing comes into our life that doesn't go through his hands that have nail prints in them. That's why we can be thankful. So, so be a thankful person. Thanks for being a thankful church.